Thank you, brother. Well, good morning. Uh, Happy New Year to all of you. Happy 2020. That is crazy to think about that it's 2020. I hope that your holiday season was good with your family, restful for sure. Um, And I hope that you are just filled with joy to be with the people of God today, to be gathered around his word, to hear from him. My name is Daniel. I'm a resident here. I'm not usually the one who preaches, but I'm training under Gabe and happy to be preaching the word of God this morning. And so this morning actually is going to be a little different because we usually do expository preaching, which means we go through uh, one book of the Bible verse by verse and uh, go through all of it together. Um, and this morning being that we just came out of Advent and that we are not the, co- the college students aren't all back yet. Uh, I was given the opportunity to choose the topic this morning. So uh, the title of this sermon today is The Kingdom of God for Today, A Call to Christian Optimism. And if you have a Bible, I would like to invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's where we're going to be looking this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's one scattered along the row there. I encourage you to grab one of those um, as we look to God's word this morning together. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. We're going to be reading through verse 17. This is the word of God. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will point a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Thanks be to God. 
Lord, I just pray this morning that you would help me. Father, I pray that you would speak through this unworthy servant, for that is all that I am. Thank you for the joy of being with your people. I thank you for the blessing of your word and the life that it gives to us, the peace that it gives, God. I pray that you would be with your people this morning. I pray that you would work in their hearts, O God. I pray that if there is anyone in this room this morning who does not know you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would hear your gospel, and they would be drawn to Christ in repentance and faith, be reconciled to you today, God. I pray that. I ask that. I pray that your spirit would move in the hearts of your own and be drawn to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning, God. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. Amen. So this text that we're looking at today is known as the Davidic Covenant. So in covenantal theology, you may have heard that before, we divide uh, biblical covenants really into two main covenants. There's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old being God's covenant with Israel before Christ, right, and the New being God's covenant with both Jew and Gentile after Christ. Uh, So these covenants, they're not independent of each other. It's not really the right way to think about it, but the new is actually a fulfillment of the old covenant is the way that you want to think about it. But really this distinction that you see, you can see it from cover to cover through God's word, the entire counsel of his word, but uh, you know, it can be seen clearly from a passage I want to share with you this morning from the prophet Jeremiah, where Yahweh says the following. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. It says, behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so the Davidic covenant that we're looking at is one of several covenants in the Old Testament that God makes with an individual, really. Another example would be God's covenant with Noah, right, the rainbow. God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with Moses. There's a few of them. And this covenant that we're looking at has bearing on both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, as I'm hoping to demonstrate to you today. So I want to share this quote with you. This is Michael Grisanti, who's a professor of the Old Testament at the Master's Seminary. He says this about this specific text that we're looking at this morning. He says, God's establishment of his covenant with David represents one of the theological high points of the Old Testament scriptures. This key event builds on the preceding covenants and looks forward to the ultimate establishment of God's reign on the earth. And again, another quote, Walter Brueggemann regards it as the dramatic and theological center of the entire Samuel corpus and as the most crucial theological statement of the Old Testament. My point being to you is this text is grand what we're looking at today. It's a big text and it's the height of Israel's hope for hundreds and hundreds of years and is in fact our hope today in the new covenant. Uh, but I'm getting my head of myself a little bit there. So uh, this text has promises, really you can see two different categories of promises. Those that find their realization in the life of David and those that find their realization after his death. Now, I would love to go through all of them. I would just love 
preach for hours and hours and go through every single one of those and show you how all of those are fulfilled today throughout God's word, but that would take hours and, you know, you guys are probably going to get hungry and I am too today, so, you know, we should make good use of the time that we have together. So today we're going to be focusing on uh, the promises that find their realization after David's death are the ones that we're going to be looking at. And of those, there are three. And the first being, we see that God promises a house, right? And we see this in verse 11, if I can direct your attention to the text. The second, starting in the second sentence, it says, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, declares the Lord, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And so when God promises this house, it's not in terms of a structure, right? That's not exactly what God's promising, but a line, a line of kings, right? A dynasty, if you will. And Yahweh promises to build the house of David, which is a term that we see a lot in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. Uh, This house that he promises is a forever house. It will go on forever. It's not just referring to his immediate family or lineage. You see in this text that David does desire to build Yahweh a house, but then God had other plans for his servant, right? He declares that before his house will be built, he's going to establish the house of David. That's what he promises, and this happens before the building of any sort of structure. So through David, here's the point, God will establish a a dynastic line that will, as we see in verse 16, be made sure forever before him. The second promise we see that finds its realization after the life of David is a seed, right? We see this in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, right? So this seed refers to Solomon, right? That's the, what the reader thinks, then we hear that. But it also refers to all the royal descendants of David and ultimately to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, right? We know that Solomon was David's direct descendant, the one who did in fact build a temple in Jerusalem for God. But this promise of a seed, it goes beyond just Solomon, right? It's given within the context of a forever house. Of course, having the whole Uh, canon of scripture, we can see that really clearly. And the point is that this seed will always have the royal right to sit upon the Davidic throne. That's the right to the seed of David. God also declares that he will have the relationship of a father to a son with this seed, is important to take note of, and that his steadfast love will remain upon this seed. The third promise that we see is a kingdom, right? We see this in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So after God promises an eternal house to David, he promises a seed to David. He then promises he's going to establish a kingdom forever through David. Now, this isn't the first time that God promises a kingdom. That happens earlier on. But this is the first time where God promises to David that it's through him that he's going to establish this forever kingdom, right? Just to give you a few other references, I'm not going to go through these because we don't have time, but to give you a few other references as to God's promises concerning a kingdom, you can look at Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 and, excuse me, 7 and 19, Genesis chapter 17, verse 6 and 16, and Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 through 20. I encourage you to go read those. So the kingdom of God, the kingdom that God promises here and establishes through David, it is representative of God's kingdom right? And it's, in fact, it's regarded as such by the people. 
In 1 Chronicles 28, verse 5, this is David speaking. He says, And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And in fact, the king was referred to as the Lord's anointed, right? David was anointed by Samuel. This is 2 Samuel 19. It says, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed, referring to David. And this is really where the concept of the Messiah comes from, right? Jesus, we call, we refer to him as the Messiah. This is really where that concept comes from. It's a, it's, it's a term that means anointed one, in fact. And it's a constant theme that runs through the book of Samuel. And this idea of a Messiah for Israel, it comes from the hope of a righteous king who would come one day and take his rightful seat upon the throne of David. That was his rightful seat, and he would sit on that throne forever. It was his. And so as God promises, as he makes these promises, he keeps his promises, as he always does, right? He perpetuates this line of kings, and Israel, they hold on to this hope for such a long time. You know, you and I, we're looking back on it in history, but for them it was a long time, and this filled them with hope, right? Isaiah 9, which is probably one of the most popular Advent texts, right, at least in the Old Testament, I would say, um, we can see this there, we can see this hope really. Um, and I want us to think about these words today. We know the first words well, right? For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, right? You've heard that, we know that. But think about some of these other statements that are made here as I'm about to read it, and what that might have meant to an Israelite in the time before Jesus came, how it might have filled them with hope, right? This is Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. It says, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I mean, just think about the tremendous hope that comes that would have, an Israelite would have had in that time. Just the hope that it fills you and I with, knowing that God's fulfilled that. It's incredible. Another prophecy I want to share with you, this is Daniel chapter 2. You know, you remember the story of Daniel. He interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. This is part of his interpretation. It's really the conclusion that he comes to. This is Daniel 2, 44 through 45. It says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. And Daniel's prophecy, in fact, it predicts the time in which the Messiah would come, right? That's why in the time of Jesus, everybody was like, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? They knew he was around somewhere. They were in expectation, right? Israel was expecting a king and a kingdom. They were waiting for him. They knew he was coming. They knew that God had promised it. And then the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, Christ, he comes in the flesh. And the gospel according to Matthew, which we looked at during Advent, 
begins by saying this. This is Matthew chapter 1, the very first verse of the New Testament. Hear this. I want us to think about this. Don't read over these words. Read what Matthew says here. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now think about what he just said in relation to the text that we're looking at this morning. Think about what it means that Jesus is the son of David. What does that mean? It means that he's king. It means that he has the royal right to the throne of David. It means that that's his, that he is the exact fulfillment of all that God has promised concerning this messianic king in the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, the word kingdom, you know how many times that's used just in the gospel according to Matthew alone? It's 55 times the word is kingdom the word kingdom is used, right? That's, that's entirely Matthew's point, really, is to demonstrate Jesus is the king. He's brought his kingdom to demonstrate that to Jewish people, but also to Gentile people all over the world. All right, would you turn with me real quick? Matthew chapter 12, I want us to look at this together so you can be absolutely assured that the kingdom of God came when Jesus came, that he made that clear and that it exists today. It's here in the world today since that time. Matthew 12, uh, verse 22 through 28. In fact, I'm going to turn there real quick. Again, Matthew 12, 22 through 28. Let's see here. So it says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We're going to stop there. So Jesus made it clear. He says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, which he did and which it was, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here now. I brought it with me. In fact, when Jesus goes and stands before Pilate, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, yes, you've said so. I am. You might say to me, well, hey, bro, um, Jesus said my kingdom's not of this world. So that means his kingdom's not in the world, right? It must be a heavenly thing or it must not be existent in the world, right? I want us to think about that. When Jesus said that, was he really trying to say that his kingdom had nothing to do with the world or that it wasn't? in the world. I mean, if he said that, that would really go against a lot of what he taught, not, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. And I don't think that really the context of that really suggests that at all. I think what he was saying is that his kingdom is not like kingdoms of this world. It's not like earthly kingdoms, right? You can't touch it. There's not a, a physical castle or a throne, right? And what happens to earthly kingdoms? What happens to those? Give it 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, they go away. They cease to exist, but the kingdom of God does not. It exists forever. And that's what Jesus brought. That's what he was teaching. So 
why am I driving this point, right? Because we know that. We believe that. We believe in the kingdom of God. We believe we're a part of that. We believe we belong to that. And we believe that we exist, that that, that that exists in the world. We exist as part of the kingdom of God. Well, if the king has come, if he's on the throne now, that must mean that the kingdom exists right now in the earth, and it must mean some really important things for you and I today as people living in the new covenant 2,000 years after the advent of Christ. That's, that's mean some really important things to you and I, I think, that we should consider, right? The promise is that this kingdom would be a forever kingdom. It didn't stop when Jesus ascended to the throne of God, to the right hand of God. You know, you and I as Christians, as people who are reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ, as people who've been made into new creations, we are part of an eternal kingdom that exists right now in the earth. And I want us to consider the gravity of that today, what that might mean for us. How do we view the world with kingdom eyes? God promises that this kingdom, it would be vast. It would, be, it would grow exponentially, it would be expansive, and it would heaven, heaven, heavily influence the world. This kingdom would flood the nations and bring them to submission in Jesus. Not just individual people, the nations would come to Jesus. Right, Habakkuk 2, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Even Jesus, speaking in parables, said his kingdom is like a mustard seed that is smaller than all the other seeds, right? But it grows to be the largest bush or tree. That's Jesus speaking about his kingdom and how it starts and grows in the world. Jesus said in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go disciple the nations. Go teach the nations to submit to Jesus, not just individual people, right? That's important. Of course that's important. I'm not diminishing that. But this is what Jesus came to do, to usher in a kingdom and to bring the nations to himself. Daniel 7, it says, and this is prophecy, and most people believe this is widely believed among theologians to be the ascension, where this is said. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And this can be tough, right, sometimes to think about. This can be tough because when, when you and I look at the world today, it's hard to see it. It can be hard to have that hope that really the kingdom of God is absolutely in the world today, is expanding and growing and influencing the world. Our newspaper tells us a different story, oftentimes, doesn't it? Every day, it seems. I mean, we live in a country that's morally decaying in a lot of ways. I mean, we have all kinds of heartbreak and sad things that go on. We have the abortion crisis, we have gender that's just being flattened out. I mean, we have all those things that are just a complete leaving of God's word and a, and a worldview, a biblical worldview. We have these things going on that really run rampant in a lot of ways, and we see that even in the news, and that, that could be hard. How do you look at something like that with kingdom eyes, you know? Not even just moral decay, but conflict that we have going on, threats going on, conflicts with other countries. It's a fearful thing, right? It can make us fearful. So what do we do as Christians, right? How do we respond to that? What do we do as Christians who hold on to these tremendous promises and belong to such a kingdom? And it can be really easy to think pessimistically, to think negatively as Christians 
about what is in front of you and I. To be fearful of the future. And I want us to think about what that might do. If we go there, if we think negatively about what's in front of us, that leads us down a road that I don't think we should be going down. It leads, pessimism leads to retreatism. It leads, it leads us to go inward, not outward, right? So our faith, our practice can become a thing that we just do on Sundays or a thing at night that we do alone in our room. But when we go out into the world, it's just back to business as normal. We don't really talk about it. We don't think about these things that we see in the news and things like that can lead us to privatize our faith almost. And so today I want to call you to something. I'd like to call us to Christian optimism because of the kingdom of God, right? To have hope for what lies ahead in the world. And what if I told you that really an idea that's negative about the future was really born in Western civilization, really only in the past 150 years or so? throughout church history that has not been the prominent view. Think about this. What if the church wins in human history? What if the kingdom of God prevails just like God promised? What if? Jesus said to Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If nothing else, be optimistic for the sheer fact alone that Jesus reigns. He does today. He reigns now, and his kingdom is filling this earth. Have hope about that. You see, Jesus went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What, is that, what does that mean? What, what is the gospel of the kingdom? What's the good news of the kingdom? Why is that good news? I want you to think about that for a moment. You see, the gospel of the kingdom, it's not just Jesus in my heart so that I personally don't have to go to hell and can go to heaven and be in eternity with him one day. That's true for all of us who have faith in Jesus today. But the gospel of the kingdom is more than that. The story's bigger than just that. The gospel of the kingdom is about a righteous king coming to redeem and rule his creation that fell into sin so long ago. It's about the nations coming to God and living in submission to Jesus Christ. It's about God doing what he promised so long ago in Genesis 3, in fact, to crush that serpent to throw him down. It's about God doing what he promised in Genesis 15, that his kingdom would be as numerous as the stars. Right? That's what he told Abraham. Look to the stars. Can you count them? As numerous as the stars, so shall your offspring be. You see, the entire Bible is about the kingdom of God. That's the story. The story is about the kingdom of God in the earth. Jesus ushering in this kingdom and him reigning and ruling, and the nations coming to him and submitting to him. That's good news. That's the good news. Don't let your newspaper be the arbiter of truth. Don't let that be the standard for what lies ahead of you. Don't, I encourage you not to let that happen. You see these promises? See them from cover to cover in Scripture and believe these promises. Let the Bible be your hope for what lies ahead of you. 
Not just, not just one place here, not just one place there, but cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. The story is a king and a kingdom forever. That's the story. Believe these promises and witness them coming to fruition as Jesus, as he sits on his throne and his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. So we're promised. And so I'd like to share some statistics with you that I think might shock you a little bit just about Christianity in the world and how far that's come. And so as you know, when Jesus ascended, he gave the Great Commission, and then from there the gospel began to shape the world, to shake the world up. And so in AD 150 is the first statistic I have for you, which is roughly 120 years after Jesus' earthly ministry. It's estimated that there were about 40,000 Christians in the world at that time. 8,200, 50 years later, there were about 218,000 Christians in the world. And these are estimations. Uh, if you don't believe me, I have a works cited page. I'm happy to share that with you afterwards. Uh, 8,250, 50 years after that, there were about 1.17 million Christians. So let me just fast forward because it just gets bigger and bigger. A.D. 1800s, so 220 years ago, roughly 204 million Christians. A.D. 1910, 600 million. 1970, 1.23 billion. In 2010, roughly 2.4 billion Christians worldwide is the last statistic that I was able to find. And you say to me, well, that's, that's just professing Christians, bro. Right? Surely that, those aren't all true believing Christians. Christians, right? And I'll grant that to you. It's probably the case, for sure. These are estimations. They're not exact numbers. But let me, let me encourage you to think about the problem with that sort of question. That question presupposes that we have some problem with false profession and heresy that we've never had in the past. Like somehow that's running rampant now and we've never had that problem. But you see, we've always had a problem with false professions, haven't we? We've always had a problem with heresy in the church. I mean, you could see that from the time of Jesus on. You had Pharisees, you had Gnosticism, you had the Judaizers in Galatia. Paul writes about it. John writes about false professions. The writer of Hebrews writes about it. That has always existed. Right? I understand those numbers aren't exact, but you have to do something with the way that that is just exponentially growing, right? If that's the way that the statistic is going, that means something, right? You have to do something with those numbers. I mean, even, I saw this the other day, Fox News the other day reporting on the Passion Conference. It says, 65,000 Christians gather to worship Jesus and hear the Bible. That's what it said. That's Fox News, a major news outlet, one of the biggest in the country. I encourage you actually to go see the picture of it online. It's actually pretty crazy. If, if, if you don't think that's awesome, I don't know what will. And of course, maybe they have some issues there. It may be watered down in a lot of ways, but that's awesome to see, isn't that? That people would gather to worship God, to hear the Bible, even with the problems that might be going on, right? How about China? I want to share, with, share about China with you for a few moments today as well. You know, Protestant Christianity is rapidly growing in China over the last few decades. You might have heard that or read that somewhere. They're actually on track to becoming the world's most Christian nation in terms of growth. In 1980, roughly 3 million and now it's roughly 100 million, the way that's, that's grown, right? That's crazy. In fact, it's such a problem for that nation that they're, you may have read this the other day, they're trying to rewrite the Bible. 
to reflect communist ideals. Uh, let's see how that goes for him. I don't think that it's going to go very well. Actually, I'm sure that it isn't. Uh, biblical Christianity is taking that country by storm. And Jesus is at work there, let me tell you. It's even such a problem that they're jailing pastors, putting them away on totally just bogus charges, honestly. You may have read about Pastor Wang Yi the other day. He was sentenced to nine years in jail for inciting subversion of state power. This is a pastor of Early Reign Covenant Church. And I'd like to share with you a quote that I read in the article. These quotes are in response to what's going on. The first is a man named Bob Fu, who is president of the US-based Christian nonprofit organization called China Aid. He said, I think the regime is really afraid of Wang's national and international impact, especially the growing influence of the reformed evangelical movement he was leading nationwide. Another pastor, Huang Xiaoning, if I'm saying that right, based in Gongzhou in southern China, said, some in the church will be intimidated, while some will have their faith reinforced. And we pray for this man. In fact, God, I just pray for that pastor. I pray that you would be with him, his wife, his family, his church family, God. I pray, we pray for his release and so many others that have been put away wrongfully for serving you, God. But first and foremost, we pray that your will would be done in China. We pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that you would use this to radically change that country and the world as well. The world would look at that and see that Jesus is king and that he reigns today. And let us come to him. Amen. Amen. You see, not even China can stop the kingdom of God from permeating and radically impacting that country. In Psalm chapter 2, it says, it begins by saying, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What does God do? Do you know? What does God do in response to that? He laughs. God laughs in response to that, right? I know that you and I, we don't think about God laughing very much. But let me tell you something that our God finds absolutely hilarious. When earthly kings and kingdoms set themselves against him and think that they're going to get away with it. And think that they're going to prevail against him. He thinks that's hilarious. And he warns these earthly kings to repent. Kiss the sun lest you perish. The psalm also reads, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. The ends of the earth. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you today, Jesus didn't forget to ask. He didn't. Surely not. How about the mass distribution of God's word, the way that God has transmitted his word throughout history, even long before there was a printing press around, the way that it was hand, copied by hand in form of manuscripts on, even the earliest manuscripts on papyrus leaves, it was copied. But God preserved his word faithfully throughout history, and now, you and me, any of us, we could pull out our phone and we can have any translation in the click of the button. That's crazy to think about. It was on leaves 2,000 years ago. 
And now you and I have smartphones and we can pull out any translation of the word of the living God. That is something that the apostles at the early church only could have dreamed of, right? Do you believe Habakkuk 2.14 where it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As the waters cover the sea. Do you believe that one day the word of God will be revered and prized and exalted all over this planet by a multitude of people, by all of the nations? Do you believe that that day is coming? That that's our future, in fact. That's where things are going. Though we do live in a fallen world of sin, where rough things happen, that day's coming, my, my dear brothers and sisters, it is. So have hope. That's my encouragement to you. Have hope today, church. Have hope for eternity in the presence of God, but have hope also that the kingdom of God is multiplying and expanding in God's world. You see, God's dwelling place, his house, we read about in, in the text that we were looking at in Second Samuel. His dwelling place today, where is that? It's in you. It's in me. The Spirit of God dwelling in us, taking up permanent residence in us, and is in millions of people all over the world today. And it's only going to grow as the reign and rule of Jesus Christ continue to take this world by storm. You see, Jesus he didn't die for just a couple of salvations over here, a couple over there. God took on human flesh to die for a kingdom. A kingdom of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Psalm 110.1, the most quoted text in the New Testament from the Old Testament says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Let me ask you, where is Jesus today? He's at the right hand of God, where his enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. He's on the throne of David, his rightful place. He's reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords today and forever. So dear brothers, let us have hope. Brothers and sisters, let us have hope today for what lies ahead. Let us move outward. Let us live as kingdom people. Let us see the world with kingdom eyes. Let us take part in the kingdom of God, influencing and expanding in the world. And so in conclusion, I'd like to share this with you. There's a phrase you may have heard before. It's the phrase, long live the king, right? It's been throughout history. It's actually in the Bible but it's been used all throughout human history, and you can see it especially in French royalty. Uh, it was a traditional proclamation made following the accession of a new monarch in various countries. In modern times, this phrase has become a popular phrasal template, right? You've heard it, that's why you've heard it before. You've probably seen it in a movie or read it in a book somewhere. Long live the king, right? And it was proclaimed when a king would die and a new king would be ushered in, and it would signify that the throne was never empty, right? It was never void. When a king died, it was time for the new king to take that throne. And the, king, the, the throne wasn't going to be empty. There would always be a king sitting on that throne. That's what the phrase means. So as Christians, you and I have a king, don't we? Our king died. And he rose again. And he ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high and took his throne. 
And there he now reigns, drawing the nations to himself and placing all of his enemies as a footstool for his feet. Let us have hope for that tremendous reality. And to that I say, long live the king. Long live King Jesus, who reigns now and forever. So let us now come to his table in remembrance of what he's done, the kingdom that he ushered in, his body broken, his blood shed for you and I and for the entire kingdom of God. Let's pray together. As we close, I'm going to pray the Lord's Prayer. I encourage you to pray with me if you feel encouraged to, if you'd like to. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. What's in your mind as you leave church? What's in your mind every single day? Choose you this day whom you shall serve. And let today be your stone of remembrance, a witness. And if you're not saved yet, once again, this is a hard decision. But please, if you feel any pull on your heart, if you feel any slight, slight draw towards what I'm talking about, Talk to someone. We're not going to press you into salvation. We're not going to push you until you can't turn around. Like I said, this is a hard decision, and it's a lot, and we want to help you with it. Because at the end of the day, I promise you, it's worth it. It is so worth it. So the band can go ahead and come on up, and they're going to play, and we're going to go into a time of communion. There's going to be elders over there. I'll be over there if you want to talk. Talk to someone. Choose you this day whom you shall serve. That has been echoing in my mind all month as I've studied this passage. Who am I serving? Am I surrendering all? Or am I living an almost lifestyle? Am I living in the gray area? Dear God, Thank you so much for your word. And those that go before us who have brought your word so faithfully and so lovingly. God, I pray that I didn't hurt too many feelings today. But that your conviction washes over those who need it, including myself. God, thank you for the gift of Christ because we cannot obey you. I want to live in that paradox. I cannot serve you, but I must try. God, you have given so much to us over the doctrine of our lives and over the beliefs and the ways that you've gotten us to where we go, Lord. And we cannot thank you enough and we cannot serve you enough because you are a holy, unblemished God. So thank you for sending your holy, unblemished son to die a holy death so that you can see us as holy and unblemished. 
And thank you for salvation. Not salvation so we can go to heaven, but salvation so that we can dedicate the rest of our lives to the God who has set into motion the past in our life. You are a good and loving Father and you've given so much, Lord. Thank you for that. I pray that nothing that was of, that anything that was not of you does not leave this place. It falls upon deaf ears. No one hears it. But God, any truth that you spoke today through your word and through your servant, let it not stay here, let it go. Let it live a surrendered all life and not a surrendered almost life, Lord. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.